This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. And the picture here is of a wine glass bay. Dang, okay, coming up. Okay, so um, obviously my poor photography skills, uh, you know, does not do the view justice. Okay, but it is uh, truly breathtaking. And the story of how we got to see the view uh, is, uh, this was when we were in Tasmania, and at that time, Sharona was just four years old, and uh, the amazing thing was, it was about a two-hour hike, and she hiked up all by herself the whole way, without being carried. So as people were passing us, they would be like so impressed. Oh, you're still walking by yourself. You know, well, well done, well done. And I think that, you know, kept her going. So when we were tired, we would obviously sit down, you know, have a rest. But, you know, I didn't have to carry her. Uh, there was no whinging. And, you know, at times when we saw, uh, kangaroos, we would stop, you know, take a picture with some safe distance. But finally we made it and we got that view. Uh, and it was a breathtaking view. And the reason why I tell you that is most of the time when you want to get a great view, you got to go up onto a mountain. And so when Isaiah begins this prophecy and says it is a prophecy against the valley of vision, the valley of vision, he is being sarcastic. Now we know from the passage that he is referring to Jerusalem, referring to uh, God's people in the southern kingdom. And the thing about Jerusalem is that it is actually located on a mountain, Mount Zion. So why is Isaiah saying, Jerusalem, you valley of vision? Well, I think his uh, point made in a sarcastic way is that even though you have received Word from God. Even though you are on a mountain and as God's people, you're supposed to be able to see, you are actually blind. You see as well as, you know, if you're actually in a valley, you lack vision. You're actually a blind people. So that's our first point. Isaiah addressing this blind people. And as the prophecy begins, uh, you know, clearly the people are blind. And there's a contrast with Isaiah who can see. Now, the, the way that the people are blind is that they are celebrating. So you see, they have gone up onto the roof. And uh, you must think the roofs are flat, okay, not slanted this way. If not, you know, they won't be celebrating. They'll be crying out in pain because they fall off the roofs. No, this is flat. And people in those days, they go onto the roof and they are celebrating. There's all this commotion and celebration. And the reason for this celebration is most likely because Jerusalem has experienced a close shave. The enemy has come near, but didn't manage to infiltrate. The enemy has come near, but did them no harm. And so they celebrated. But it is a celebration of blind people. Because for Isaiah who can see, he sees into the future and sees, hey, your celebration doesn't make sense. Because God has already said he is going to bring judgment on you. And so in the middle of verse 2, he talks about, your slain were not killed by the sword, 
nor did they die in battle. Now, if the people who are slain are not killed in battle, are not killed by the sword, then most likely it is referring to a siege that will happen against Jerusalem and the people dying through starvation. So uh, Isaiah with vision, with the vision given by God, looks into the future and sees, no, God is coming on judgment against you. You, you blind people, you should not be celebrating now. You should hear the word of God. He's given you his word and yet, you know, just this close shave and you're celebrating already. Now there is more information given about this day in verses 5 to 7. And in verse 5 it says, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. So this judgment clearly comes from the hand of God. And it is a day of battering down walls, of crying out to the mountains. The enemies will come. They will lay siege on Jerusalem. There will be this ceaseless battering of the walls until it crumbles. And then this crying out to the mountain. You know, the, the, the judgment from God will be so bad that the people will actually cry out to the mountains, fall on us, crush us, because the alternative seems so much worse. And then the nations will come against Jerusalem. Verse 6, Elam takes up the quiver, Ker uncovers the shield, all getting ready for battle against Jerusalem. So the blind people, cannot see what God has said. What God has said is coming upon them. But why is God so upset with his people? What, what's the wrong that Jerusalem has done? Well, in the book of Isaiah, we will see that there are many. But in this passage, in verses 8 to 11, we see one example of what Jerusalem did wrong. When verse 8, it says, The Lord stripped away, the defenses of Judah. Okay, so uh, God brought against Judah an enemy. And what did Judah do? How did Judah respond when the enemy approached? Well, Judah looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. So this is uh, an armory that was created by Solomon. And so when the, when the enemy was coming near, Jerusalem's response was, okay, let's look to our weapons. Let's go and get, you know, the storehouse and bring out our weapons. And then verse 9, you saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. So they examined, okay, how's our defenses doing? And they, oh, alamak, okay, there's a hole here and then there's a weakness here. Okay, so they assess the situation. And then uh, verse 9 again, you stored up water in the lower pool. Because if a siege is going to happen, then one thing you don't want to run out of is water. So they began, you know, water saving exercise, you know, all the aunties bring buckets, you know, salt water. Yeah, nothing like that. But, you know, they stored out water, okay? And then again, verse 10, you counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. So, very self-sacrificial. Oh, you know, this, the, the hole in the wall here, okay, where, where do we get the bricks? Where do we get the stone to, to patch it up? And then some people will actually volunteer, okay, my, my holiday house, okay, take it, you know. And then they'll tear it down, use the bricks, and then they'll shop the defense. 
And then verse 11, you build a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So again, they, instead of just storing up water, uh, they had this reservoir where, you know, uh, water from the spring of Gihon would flow continuous into it so that Jerusalem would not lack any water. And in the way that Isaiah describes the activity of the people, they look to the wall, they look to the water, they look to the wall again and back to the water. It's his way of describing this frenetic activity. And the enemy is coming, and then Jerusalem is, is you know, all in uh, frenetic activity. Okay, patching up the wall, getting the water ready, the, back to the wall, back to the water. They are busy making sure that they are prepared. Now, in a sense, obviously, there's nothing wrong with being prepared. You know, getting the weapons out, making sure you have enough water. But verse 11 Look at verse 11. Verse 11 very clearly says what was wrong with the attitude. God says, you built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it, or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. So clear. It is not wrong. Not wrong to be ready. Not wrong to look at holes in a wall and you know want to patch it up but their fundamental attitude was they were self-reliant that their first instinct was to rely on what they could do oh yeah you can tear down my holiday house you know i'm willing to sacrifice that okay patch up the wall you know we patch up this wall we'll be safe against the enemy they were looking to themselves it was the sin of self-reliance and you see, this, this prophecy, this book of Isaiah, even though it's written, you know, 2,700 years ago, you know, it's, it's a prophecy about a specific city in a specific, you know, historical time period. But because this is God's word, God's word to us, the attitudes that Isaiah warns us about here, I'm sure you agree with me, it is so relevant. Right? When something strikes, you know, medical condition or some issue at work or family problem. I mean, so many times our first instinct is, okay, what can I do? We look to our own resources. Even though as the people of God, we have seen God coming true for us, coming true for us every single time. That's how good his track record is. And yet, when something happens, my instinct so often is to turn to my resources, human answers. And obviously, beyond the, the church in the wider culture of our day, this attitude of self-reliance is something celebrated. I remember a parable that Jesus told uh, in Luke 12. Let me read it to you. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, aha, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, drink. And be merry. But God said to him, 
You fool! You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it is with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This attitude of self-sufficient, independent self-reliance from God that plagues our world, our, our culture around us. But God says here, the enemy is coming and you worry about you know, not having enough water and you, and you build this great engineering feat. You go to Israel today, you can still see it. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. So, you know, maybe uh, 2025, uh, we start saving up money now and we can have a church camp in Israel. You know, how about that? Okay, and then we can go and see these things for ourselves. Okay, 2025, start saving. You know, cut down one coffee a week or whatever. Okay, and, 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 and I mean, it's still there today, we can see it, because it is truly a great engineering feat. And the people, when the enemies were approaching back in, you know, uh, 700 BC, they looked to that. They put their trust in that. But God was saying, hey, I'm the one that built Jerusalem. I know its geography. So if enemies are coming against you, I know that one issue will be the, the water supply. I know that better than you. I designed Jerusalem. I placed you here. I made this the capital city. You did not look to me. God is saying. So that's the first problem of this blind people. They were blind. They did not look to the Lord. In verses 12 to 14, there is uh, another problem that Isaiah highlights with the people. In verse 12, the Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. So very clearly, God, through his prophet, you know, explicitly calling on them, you know, putting on that sackcloth is, is, to, is to repent. You know, turn back. Repent. Come back to me. You know, the God reaching out to his people saying, okay, the right attitude here is to confess your sins. Confess that you have done wrong. Repent and turn back. But what have the people done? Verse 13. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle, killing of sheep. You know, when you have meat in the Middle Eastern culture, then there's really a big celebration, right? Eating of meat, drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. Again, this is not isolated for, you know, Jerusalem, just then, just them in that, in, in that time. But this attitude of, you know, running to entertainment, this attitude of seeking to distract ourselves through, you know, looking at, um, amusing ourselves, being distracted by entertainment. I mean, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with, you know, seeking pleasure in godly, good entertainment. But when God is reaching out to us, when the truth of God is 
coming and confronting us. And yet, our response is to, you know, like, not want to deal with that. You know, trying to hold that at arm's length and instead, okay, okay, don't, don't, don't think about the hard questions. Okay, let's just, let's just watch another Netflix. Let's just, you know, go for a run. And we don't want to deal with the hard questions God, in His kindness, is bringing to us. And God says, the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Because God has again and again been reaching out. It's not just, you know, first chance, second chance, okay, forget it. No, he's been reaching out, calling out to his people. But they have turned away, they have distracted themselves with amusement, uh, entertainment. They refuse to deal with the hard questions. And so God says, okay, time comes when there's no more reaching out. There's no more calling back to repent. I mean, can you, can you reckon with the severity of this word? Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. I mean, to be in a position where God says this, where the verdict over your life is this, no more atonement, no more chance of escape from the terrible wrath of God. And God says this is what His people because of their turning away from him repeatedly, wanting to be distracted, turning to amusement. This is where they find themselves. Now this is just the first half of the chapter. I'll give the second half a bit more quickly. But before we, we turn to the second half, we see Isaiah's response. Look at verse 4. A weeping prophet. A weeping prophet. Verse 4, Isaiah says, Therefore I said, Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. So you see, Isaiah comes and he comes with this harsh word against Jerusalem. But he's not coming in some high and mighty way. He's not coming in some aloof and haughty. Oh, you, you know, you remember what I said? You know, this is what you deserve. You know, he's not coming with a sort of attitude. He's weeping. He's weeping. And I want to suggest to us that Isaiah's response here is a good example for how we should engage with our world. I think an extreme example is, you know, some churches in America where they condemn, you know, yes, clear and blatant sins of their culture. But they do so with such anger and, you know, disdain. I mean, how, how could you expect the, the world to respond with anything but resentment and, and not wanting to, to hear what they have to say? I remember this true story that was told to me of a talk show and the talk show host is, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, atheists 
but he had on his talk show a Muslim, a Hindu, and a Christian. And they were all given time, you know, on the show to share what, you know, their different faiths uh, believed in. And the Christian was the last to share. And when the Christian was sharing about the realities of heaven and hell, he just broke down in tears. And he was weeping over the fact that this talk show host is not saved. And the talk show host was, was I mean, was, was moved and said, you know, I, 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 as you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in God, but, but I, I, I respect what you have to say. And I will think about what you have just said. The way we respond with culture is not, you know, posting something on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram. It may be the truth. But do the people see us genuinely concerned? You know, when we see, you know, you know, like in America, you know, oh, this law that they've enacted, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, in America again, yeah, you know, so easy for us to go, yes, you know, them and their ridiculous ways and how they've turned away from God and, you know, you know, you know, turn our nose up at them. But, but is there weeping? Is there a weeping at this turning away from God? At, at, at the paths people have chosen that take them away from God. Is there a weeping? When was the last time you weeped over something that was, you know, wrong in our culture, over someone that was choosing to go against God? When was the last time you weeped. Now look with me to, very quickly, the second half of the prophecy where God uh, talks about two people. And the first one in uh, 15 to 19 is this guy called Shebna. Shebna is a civil servant. He's like the prime minister to the king. And, okay, I mean, you read about Shebna and he's cutting out a grave, you know, he's, uh, you know, preparing his legacy. And the issue with Shebna is, he's chosen his grave to be where the kings have their graves. Okay, I mean, that's what the scholars tell me, that's, uh, that's the understanding. So Shebna is so self-absorbed, you know, with his legacy, with how he looks. And the reason why Shebna is brought up is because Shebna, as a person, as the prime minister, he embodies the attitudes that uh, Isaiah just condemned in verses 1 to 14. And so what God says about Shebna is, verse 17, Behold, he's going to take hold of you, you know, curl you up like this tight ball and throw you away. Okay, so Shebna is going down. Okay, Shebna and all he represents, this self-absorption, this self-reliance, he's going down. Okay, an example of what will happen to Jerusalem. But in contrast to Shebna is Eliakim, verse 20. And verse 21, Shebna's role, his office of prime minister, will be passed on to Eliakim. So Eliakim will have the robe, he'll have the sash, his authority of Shebna will be handed to him. And look at Eliakim, this is a, a big difference to Shebna. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. How nice 
How wonderful to have a leader over you that is like a father. And, and, and what the scriptures here mean is, is a loving father, a good father. So over the people of Jerusalem is, you know, instead of Shebner, the lousy leader, is now Eliakim. A good leader, a fatherly figure, one who really cares, really loves the people. And then verse 22, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. Uh, And then verse 23, I will drive him like a pack into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his people. So like a a pack that is driven, you know, firm and secure. And then the picture here in verse 24, all the glory of his family will hang on him. His offspring and offshoots. You know, so this, this picture of, you know, the, the weight of the family, the nations, the people depending on him, hanging on Eliakim. When I read this, there was only one thing I thought about. Okay, so this is a picture of uh, people in a tent. Okay, and then you get, they got all their things, all their gear in this tent, you know, uh, to spend several days, you know, even up to two weeks, you know, the food, cooking material, warm clothes. And the thing about this tent, okay, next picture, is that it's hanging on a peg. And this is like, you know, 600 meters up the wall. It's great view. And, you know, when I get to have my sabbatical, this is what I want to do, all right? <laughs> you know, uh, climb El Capitan, yeah during my sabbatical. So, you see, everything is hanging on that pack. They are depending, you know, all the expensive gear, not to mention their own lives, hanging on a pack is driven into this wall. So this is a picture of Eliakim. So dependable, so trustworthy that you hang everything on him. But then in verse 25, we are told, even the best of men are men at best. Because verse 25, God says, in that day, the pack driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut down. So this is an example of uh, someone who is also hanging on a peg that's driven into the wall. Okay. And then he's... Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine what would happen if the peg he's depending on gave way? I mean, his whole life dependent on that one peg driven into the wall. And God is saying, yes, as, as, as good as Eliakim is, and he's so great compared to Shebna, Ultimately, he cannot take the weight. So a lousy leader, of course, we don't need. Even a good leader, God is saying here, ultimately is not enough. The leader that we need, the leader that we need, we are driven ahead to see the leader that God has provided. Of course, he is the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who came 
and when he was in Jerusalem, also wept over Jerusalem. But the difference between Jesus who weeps over Jerusalem and Isaiah who weeps is that Jesus does more than weep. Jesus can do more. I mean, Isaiah could only proclaim the words of inevitable judgment and say that, okay, you know, again and again this word has come to you, but you refuse to repent. And so there is no atonement. He could only declare and he could only weep. But Jesus comes he doesn't only weep. He comes and he sheds his blood. And the shedding of his blood is this, you know, what he explained, you know, the, the cup of God's wrath. Right? All of your self-reliance. All the sin of your self-absorption. All the sins of your turning away, even though, you know, numerous times I called out to you and I reached out to you. All of that turning away from me, all that wrath that we deserve for rebelling against God. Jesus says, I have come to drink this bowl dry. And so because Jesus has done that, he has not only shed tears, he has shed his blood. The giving of his life to atone for our sins so that the reality now is... There is opportunity that before your dying day, if you have not turned to Christ, turn to Him and you will find that there is salvation, that there is forgiveness. You will find that this pact on whom you lean your whole life, not just your physical life, but your eternal destiny of what happens beyond the grave, you can lean that fully on Him and it will not be shut off. You can lean fully on Him. All of your sin, the weight of your sin, He has taken it, He has atoned for it, every single one. This is the leader we need and this is the leader God has given us. And the truth is, because we are a blind people, even such great truth, sometimes we are blind to it. And so we need God. We even need God to show us our need for Christ. And God doesn't just give us the leader we need. He also gives us the eyes to see that we need Him. And so the next song we're going to sing will be a prayer. And I want to urge you to sing that as a prayer for God to show us Christ. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.